Welcome, everybody, to Sanctuary Church Online. Welcome again. Uh, my name is Andrew, pastor here at Sanctuary. We're just, uh, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, if you're joining as a part of the East Side congregation or part of the Central congregation, we want to keep encouraging you as you feel comfortable to begin to come uh, 15 Hayes Street uh, on, uh, at 10 a.m. on Sundays in person. Uh, it has just been an extraordinary thing to come back together, to hear uh, people singing together, uh, to hear the word together, to take communion together in the same space. Uh, after a year of being separated, it has been a gift, especially right for those that have been coming regularly on Sunday morning to be back together. So we just want to keep encouraging you. We're going to keep doing this broadcast and keep coming to you uh, in this way, in different formats and live streams through our broadcast throughout uh, the next couple months. And um, as things begin to open up more and more and more, uh, we are really excited about being all back together again and for East Side and Central to begin to gather again uh, in their separate locations as well. Uh, and then shout out to Sanctuary North who is also gathering uh, today in person. I want to begin our time, usually we begin in the scriptures, but I want to hold off for one moment. I want to begin with a quote from Dallas Willard. He writes, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. Like we play this part in keeping our attention on the Lord, on the Spirit. In the early time of our practicing, this is when we first begin to work out practicing the way of Jesus, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones. Anyone have habits that they, they just don't want in their life anymore to be replaced by more beautiful and true and good ones. As we do this, we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. I begin with this, and because we uh, regularly will stop, sometimes do a series, we do this in our home churches almost every week, where we dive into a particular practice, something that we see Jesus do in scripture, something that we see the New Testament church do in scriptures, something the early church, or even the more modern church, practices that help us um, uh, wade into the water, uh, practices that help us open ourselves up and become aware of God's goodness and grace. We are embodied creatures. Uh, and so today I want to talk about the practice of coming around the table, the dinner table together. And, and I, I want to talk about this for a couple of reasons. One, I um, had a sort of different agenda uh, originally for today. And I uh, was having a conversation with a home church leader. So our home churches, if you're brand new, are these groups of 10 to 20. You come together, uh, and normally in normal times, we come together and we eat and we pray. We practice the way of Jesus. We study scripture together. We serve together. Uh, and everything's been really online in this place for the last year. But as home churches are beginning to regather in person, as we just entered into a season, for those that are even still online, of seeing a lot of growth in some of our home churches. And I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, 
this, uh, this one home church leader reminded me of this practice, this series that we did around hospitality, around eating together, around how central this is to the way of Jesus, something that we had done three, four years ago. Uh, and so midweek this week, I've, I've kind of prayed into that and felt the spirit just kind of lead me to pivot um, that this is actually a very uh, important moment, an opportune moment in our world, specifically in the life of our church, um, to encourage one another uh, as we begin to regather. And as many of us, we just was talking here with the team uh, about the anxiety that creeps up, uh, I think, for some of us around re-engaging. Uh, FOMO hasn't really been a thing, right, for the last year. It's going to creep back in. Um, for those of us that struggle with social anxiety anyway, never mind after a year of kind of hitting pause on a lot of interaction, uh, the necessity and the need for us uh, to begin to move closer together, even if that's still in an online fashion, that we as a family, um, as we've been disoriented and scattered, um, though many of us have already reconnected and stepped in, this is going to be such a critical summer for us uh, as we begin to um, make sense of what following Jesus looks like post-pandemic. So I share that Dallas Willard quote and I share a little bit of background about why I'm gonna teach on the table because um, like every spiritual practice, like everything that we seek to um, become an apprentice to Jesus in, uh, it is really critical that we get this right and we recognize the weight and power of it. The table, assuming most of you have some table that you sit and eat at, is an incredibly ordinary place. It's so routine and everyday that is easily overlooked as a place of life-changing community. And by setting a table and by sharing a meal, even I'm thinking of home churches that have shared meals over Zoom. I think even in that disconnected place, there's something there. We provide the context for which people feel loved and people feel heard. It's a place where God's spirit seems to move in mysterious ways. The practice of eating and drinking is central. It is a central practice, central tenet of the way of Jesus. Jesus ate with the lost and he ate with his community and he even in this sense eats with God. So I wanna invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, I realize I did not grab my Bible. If you turn with me to John 13, John 13, Here, just give me a moment. We read, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we're setting up the beginning of the end in Jesus' story here. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted the son of Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power so that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter 
and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And then we begin to have this whole, um, many of you know this story, this moment of, of um, feet washing, of moving from a deep place of, um, of, of both food and then beginning to this ancient practice, this regular ritual that would not be done by a rabbi like Jesus to come and wash his apprentice's feet. This is a story, if you want to go back and read the whole story, if you're new to the scriptures, story about hospitality, about Jesus eating and drinking with his people and then grabbing water and taking care of a very practical need washing the dirty feet of people with right open-toed sandals walking around the Middle East and saying, now you do as I do, and then inviting his apprentices to wash each other's feet. And, And that this would mark like a central practice of what it meant to follow the path of Jesus. We read in Acts 2, 42. So this is just a little while later where the first church is beginning to gather, the same group of people. And in this famous passage about what the early church looked like, we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who has need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And some beautiful things happened, right? The Lord added to their number daily. Notice that in this synopsis of the original church, the one practice that's repeated, not only once, not twice, but three times, is eating together. To the breaking of bread, every day they continued to break bread. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This, in ancient writing like this, is how you emphasize a point. This isn't just on accident. The writer here, Luke, is driving a point home. Eating together was core. Now, in a few other places, just as like a, a quick overview of the scriptures here of the early church, we read in Romans 16, This is a letter to the church at Rome. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. In Colossians, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Philemon 1, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, Archibus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. There's this line from Jesus of Nazareth to the early church all the way to Paul's letters. This guy is going around and setting up all over this area these new outposts of the kingdom, these new uh, pockets of people practicing the way of Jesus together. We notice this through line of followers of Jesus eating and drinking around a table in a home as family. The New Testament tells the story of how the church spread from just a few dozen people around a table with Jesus out into the streets of Jerusalem all through the Roman Empire 
to what is today this, right? Obviously, we're, we're all a part of this global historic movement. The New Testament tells the story of just after just a few decades, you see this just a powerful, powerful spread, all of it beginning at the table. So one way to tell the story of this spread and what happened is through a kind of a funny lens. And I was reminded of this and I shared this again a couple of years back and I went back and pulled these notes up and I was again fascinated just myself to reread some of the history. So one way to sort of tell the story of the spread and we're gonna get back to the table here in a minute is to talk about architecture. And this is really, really critical to understanding just how central the table is. That simple thing that you have in your home that place where this whole movement began, started. So depending on how you break it down, there have been about four or so stages of church architecture, uh, at least in the West, over the last two millennia, each of which corresponds to a stage in church history. So first was the home. For hundreds of years, followers of Jesus built zero buildings. That was just not an option. So when you're running from the government and your religion or spirituality is against the law, everything was done in the home. And at the center of gravity was the table. You didn't have the option. There wasn't a way you could go out and get a contract and go get builders and and own land to do this. Now, in spite of the law, the gospel spread all through the empire and as churches grew in size and paganism then starts to die out around the same time, some churches moved into basilicas or into temples uh, that were now kind of defunct, ones that were built to Apollos and Zeus that we read about in history. They're basically these large octagon-shaped homes um, still that had a central of gravity that was the table. So stage number two, we see the movement then into cathedrals. Once the way of Jesus was legalized in the fourth century and it spread out uh, to the edge of the empire and the church then started building these big buildings. Early on, they were Romanesque in style. Later, that you have the Gothic style like uh, Notre Dame and Paris. Uh, almost all of them were built in the shape of a cross. So if you had a bird's eye view, for instance, like Westminster Abbey or something in London, it's literally in the shape of of a cross with the nave in the middle. With the shift, the meal also then kind of, um, I will use the word devolved, uh, into a drink of wine and a bite of bread. So if you've ever been to any one of these cathedrals, you know that the acoustics are like designed to bounce off the wall. You can't hear a thing. I could stand up and I could teach in front of a crowd of people. Uh, I couldn't really teach in front of a crowd of people even if I wanted to. It's like not designed for that. The mass was said in Latin for hundreds of years in spite of the fact that nobody spoke Latin except for a few priests. Uh, And at its best iterations, it was a bit mystical. Uh, And at its worst, it was just magical. Uh, But either way, you couldn't really stand up and you couldn't really teach. And so there was then a shift in the 16th century out of the Protestant Reformation. We see the churches return not only to the Bible, but to the teaching of the Bible. Now, this is before the modern printing press, uh, and so uh, before the internet, right, before podcasts. And so if you wanted to hear the Bible out loud in your own language, uh, you would need to hear somebody interpret it, and you need to go, and there was only one option to hear that. You would go to church, and there was somebody up there preaching the gospel or teaching the gospel to you, teaching the Bible to you. And so architecture uh, evolved to the sort of colonial-style church, which is essentially a box a, rectangle, a rectangularly shaped box that comes in all shapes um, 
in uh, or all sizes, I should say. So most of these in the U.S. are on the East Coast uh, because they're like right around here because they're they're older now, and so you have high-end Presbyterian Episcopalian churches. Um, yeah, everywhere we see them, especially here in Providence and uh, and in New York, um, and so often, whether whether it was like a ba- like a barn with a steeple on top, uh, it was just designed as a preaching box, uh, designed to do two things: what I'm doing right now, if I were up on the stage, uh, and then doubled sort of as a community center for the church and for the town. And at that point, uh, the center of gravity shifted from the altar to the pulpit, so the place where communion would be served to the pulpit. And there's a redesign and church after church moved from altar to the center to the pulpit, which if you go to our 15 Hay Street building, you will see that uh, shift um, did not happen in this building, was designed just be kind of before this, where the pulpit and the, is off to the side and the altar is still in the middle. So lastly, then we have the move to theater. Stay with me, theater. Around the turn of the last century, at the same time as the rise of the entertainment culture due to technology such as radio, TV, film, urbanization, where people now are all crowded together in a city and would go on the town in search of something to do around the same time, music starts to play this bigger role in church in the West. Worship by singing has always, by the way, been really central to, to the way of Christ. That's not new at all, but the emphasis on worship by singing, the kind of worship by singing with a pipe organ or a choir or a band, we think of some of that as like old school, especially the choir and organ, but in, this, in terms of the history of the church, it's a relatively new idea. Plus, at the same time, Protestants started to spend more money on church buildings. Uh, the church evolved into this theater style, which is, is what we're basically, um, like a lot of us uh, have maybe grown up in or seen. Um, the building is actually a great example of, uh, of like, um, yeah, of like what would be a modern club. Um, there may be a pipe organ, there may still be a piano, but the whole thing is designed really to simply project music and to project preaching. Uh, this is what you see in the sort of quintessential large church converted warehouse. We don't have as many of those around here, but many of you know what I'm talking about. And we think of that is a different style of architecture, and it's really just a larger, less cool version of, you know, a cathedral or a building like this, of that style right before. So I want to be very clear. I am not moralizing any of this. I'm not saying one is good or bad. I'm doing my best to kind of just tell a little bit of the story through the lens of architecture. The point is with each shift, there are things about the modern church that we assume are normal, like a theater space, like hundreds of people coming and facing a stage that weren't always normal. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's telling that the original architecture of the church, at least until the fourth century, and by the way, is still really this way in places, uh, many places in China or places where the gospel is still very illegal to talk about, that the central place, the original architecture of the church, that's why I like using this lens of architecture, the original architecture was around, was the table was a home. And I think it says something about who we are to be. So let's shift for a second. The word Christian, which most of us would call each other, little Christs, is used three times in the writings of the New Testament. There are 
two other far more dominant words for what you and I are in relationship to Jesus and each other, our identity for those of you listening as fo- or who are followers of Jesus. The first is mothetis, um, which in Greek basically translates disciple or apprentice. This is used 268 times. The other is adelphoi, which we translate brothers or sisters, or if you have a really old school church translation in the Bible, brethren. This is used about 350 sometimes. This goes all the way back to Jesus himself who calls his apprentices his adelphoi, his brothers and sisters. His family said things like this, whoever does the will of God is my brother or sister or mother and mother is my family. Or things like he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying this meal. It was a meal, not just a cracker or a sip of juice. It was a meal. Eat and drink it in remembrance of me, Jesus says. What we call church is by definition followers of Jesus who live together as family. So it should be no surprise that the original architecture of the church was a table in the home. The weekly gathering itself would have been on a Sunday night because Sunday was a work day in the Roman world. And it's not that they ate a meal like before or after the main event, right? A lot of times we'll gather for a picnic or a meal right after. It's that the meal was the main event. Paul in Corinthians uh, writes, like when you come together, when you come to gather uh, to eat, um, he literally is talking about that Sunday gathering. Like he uses the phrase, hey, when, by the way, when you come to gather to eat, and then goes on to describe things about how they should be doing church. Um, the, uh, the original followers of Jesus even had a name for their weekly gathering. Um, it was called a love feast. A love feast. The love feast, or in Greek it was the agape feast. We actually have uh, some descriptions of what this looked like. Tertullian, a bishop in the second century, as well as a theologian, he writes uh, this about that church gathering. He says, our feasts explain itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. Since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. The participants, before reclining, taste first of prayer to God. So we start with prayer. Uh, as much as eaten as satisfied the cravings of hunger, as much as drunk as befits the chaste. So much there. After, each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. As the feast commended with prayer, so with prayer it is closed. We pray, we eat, we drink, we sing, we pray. Sounds like a good Irish meal to me. But we read here from even Tertullian, right? It was an act of social justice. This is before government welfare. The poor would come to the church for food. That's why to this day, most food pantries, even if they're not actually there now, all, almost all trace their roots back to the neighborhood church. How simple it all was. You get together, you pray, you eat a meal, you make sure everyone's taken care of, and we keep going. Stand up, sing a little song. 
I mentioned this, actually, this is one of the other catalysts to talk about, you know, Easter people eat. <laughs> uh, this series that we're in about Easter people in a Good Friday role. What does it mean to be marked by the resurrection? I wanted to end with this uh, around feasting. One quote I mentioned last week was from Sifian Stevens, who's a folk artist um, that many of you are, I know, fans of. And he wrote, I mean, it's weird. What's the basis of Christianity? It's really a meal. It's communion, right? It's the Eucharist. That's it. It's the sharing of a meal with your neighbors. And what is that meal? It's the body and blood of Christ. Basically, God offering himself up to you as nutrition. That's pretty weird. It's pretty weird if you think about it. That's the basis of your faith. You know, God is supplying a kind of refreshment and food for a meal. Everything else is just accessories. And it's vital, of course, baptism and marriage, and there's always the sacraments and praying in the Holy Spirit and all this stuff. But really, fundamentally, it's just about a meal. Have you ever thought about the word service? What does it say about the modern church? By the way, you will rarely catch us slipping and using the word service here at Sanctuary. Because I don't know what it says about the modern church that we call our weekly time a service, as if it's the pastor's job, as if it's my job to provide goods and services to the religious consumer rather than a feast. My point is that central to following Jesus is eating and drinking with other followers of Jesus and doing life together as a family. This is a very simple, very simple idea, and most of the most dangerous and provocative and life-changing ideas are, right? This is an area that I think we tragically have lost over the millennia. With all in our world that feels like it's deteriorating, I can't help but wonder if one subplot is that we have lost sight of our roots, of the practice of coming to the table. Of all the, um, think of all the words, words that we use like for communion and community, companion, come from the Latin word, um, the Latin root, right? That word cum meaning together and pennies meaning bread. That's what the community, that's what a companion is. Somebody that you break bread together. The table, it catalyzes community and family, food and drink take friendship and they turn it into family and without that tie the ties that end up bind us they grow weak and this is i think what we're seeing in the world around us leonard sweet has this great book called uh, from table to tablet he's talking about this shift and he says an untabled faith is an unstable one and he's just pointing out in the west that we neglect of the like how much we neglect the table in our churches and how this gets echoed in our families and in our communities. Again, this is why when we talk about our home churches and what it means central to this, I remember when we first even made this like a more mandatory thing, (laughs) short of the using the word mandatory, like come together and we need to eat. There was this pushback, I don't know if we can make the meal and who's going to do this and do we have to put the money and so much coordination. And we just kept saying, no, this has got to be central to the regular practice of when we come together outside of our Sunday gathering that we are eating together. Many of our groups take communion together because we have to acknowledge just how influenced the church has become 
by our culture. We're supposed to be influencers, right? We often talk about this idea of like culture permeating the walls of the church, right? When we say culture, we mean the things that are not of the way of Jesus. It usually comes up around the issues of like sexuality or money, but we don't talk about like the table aspect of that, right? This is a completely lost art in our society or much of our society in the West as a whole. Um, the Atlantic recently uh, had an article on the importance of eating together, and they summarized all of this like recent statistical data that all points to basically the same conclusion, that there is a direct corollary between how many times a family eats together each week and how the children do. In all sorts of areas, whether it's from academic performance to obesity. For example... Children and families that don't regularly eat together are 40% more likely to be obese, as well as at risk for teenage pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, and anxiety. Whereas children and families that eat together and on a regular basis have lower rates of all of the above, higher graduation rates have better relationship and have better relationships with mom and dad. Some mental health professionals are going so far as to say that the solution for well-being is simple. I'm happy to send this article to anyone who would like to see it. Like basically is eating together as a family. This, this is it. And there's even recent neurobiological studies that basically say the happiest human beings are is around a table with family and friends. The only way to improve upon that level of happiness is to do that same thing outside. And yet, like the Norman Rockwell image or whatever, leave it to beaver image of the family around a table is just so hopelessly out of date. Divorce is a new normal. Most families in particular, right, um, you know, they can't, the idea of a meal almost feels like luxurious. They can't afford to even live on one income anymore. And families don't want to downsize or live simply so a parent or a spouse can think differently about being attentive to the children and to the meal. There's no partner that's staying home to prep the dinner, to practice hospitality in the home. Most parents don't even know how to you know, cook anymore. There's all sorts of very fascinating studies about this. The average American family, uh, this is crazy, now spends the same amount on fast food as they do on groceries every month. The average American is one out of five meals in the car. only 17% of American families regularly sit down for a meal. Over half of them do it over TV, and when they do eat together, one very recent study shows that the average meal time 60 years ago was an hour and a half. Now it's down to about 12 minutes. Family, this building block of society, isn't spending time together, specifically in the place that traditionally most people have spent time together, which is around the table. Last stat, over the last three decades, there has been a 45% decline in hospitality in the U.S., and by that simply meaning having other people, non-family, over for dinner. Almost cut in half. I think as a result, we live in a world of really lonely and disconnected people. Mother's Teresa, Mother Teresa's words still ring so true. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. And here's, I think, the gift that we have in this cultural moment as the church. 
the gift that we have, of all the gifts that we have to give to the world around us and to give to each other. The table is this gift. Nothing that happens in Washington is going to fix what's wrong in the West. It's not going to be our battles over the Supreme Court or over the dignity for accuser and accused alike, over issues like taxes and regulation and immigration. These things obviously matter. They matter a lot. As one writer, Ben Sassy writes, the problem, the problem is that our ever more ferocious political tribalism and mutual hatred don't originate in politics. So politics isn't going to heal them. Humans are social and relational beings. We want and need to be in tribes. In our time, however, all of the traditional tribes that have sustained humans for millennia are simultaneously in collapse. Family, enduring friendship, meaningful shared work, local communities of worship, all have grown ever thinner. We are creating thicker, more vehement tribes around our political differences. If I see one more person from sanctuary say, I'm unfollowing anybody who says this or believes this, we need to have a talk, family. It, it's a normal thing and it's nice and it's self-protective, but it's not the way of Jesus. He goes, I believe because there is a growing vacuum at the heart of our shared or increasingly not so shared everyday lives. Loneliness is everywhere across every sector of society. A survey of more than 20,000 American adults, adults conducted earlier this year by the health insurer Cigna and the market research firm Ipsos found that a majority of us are lonely. Based on responses to the UCLA loneliness scale, the highest scores were reported by the youngest adults ages 18 to 22. The researchers described it as a loneliness epidemic. This was written before the global pandemic that isolated so many of us. And none of this should surprise us. Americans today have fewer shared projects than our parents and grandparents did. And we belong to fewer civic groups. Because we change jobs more often, we have fewer lasting work relationships. We only follow our job and we never ask questions about our church and our family. We delay marriage, we have fewer children. Man, I sound like grandpa right now. But we live in larger homes, more separate from those from our neighbors. What we have as the church, our culture, to offer our world is ourselves, our faith, our culture as Christians, the way of Jesus. We have this way of the table to offer the world around us. The table's where we come, right, even for salvation. Like another fun, quick word study, like the word salvation in the New Testament can also be translated as healing. Read these two English words from the New Testament, somebody who is saved or somebody who is healed and the, is the exact same Greek word. There's like no difference here of the ointment being poured out on a wound. And salvation is by definition healing of your whole soul from the inside out, through your body, to your social sphere, to the city, to the world itself. And I point this out because I can't think of a better practice to partner with Jesus to heal the soul of the church in the West and the world around us than eating and drinking. 
This idea of hospitality, right? This in the compound word around hospitality, phileo is one of love baked into the word where we get the word hospitality, specifically in the Greek when it's mentioned in the Bible, has this word phileo, this Greek word for love in it. More specifically, it's the kind of love between brother and sister, mom and dad, it's family love, right? Think of the birthplace of our nation. It was uh, Philadelphia, Phileo, the city of brotherly love. Love is what hospitality is all about. It's what the table's all about. And this is at the very center of the way of Jesus. Jesus said the most important command in all of the library of scripture is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. The end of his life, just before his death, he set a new command. I give you three words, love one another, and then he sat down for a meal, and he picked up the towel in John 13, and he put it on display. This is love a fundamental disposition of the heart where your heart, the fulcrum of your desire and your will move toward the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. Hospitality is one of the most concrete, tangible flesh and blood expressions of love that there is. Here's a meal. Here's a cup of coffee. Here's a couch and a blanket. Here's a guest room to spend the night. Here's a relationship. Here's a listening ear. It is a tangible, real way, not a pretend way to love one another. Not something that we signal. Not something that we say and have some cognitive ascension to, but something that we actually do. Show me, right? Show me what you do. Show me what you believe by what you do. One of the best ways we have to love one another. Where's Rhea Butterfield? She writes, hospitality. Hospitality isn't just for those outside the church, but first and foremost for those inside. So God calls Christians to practice hospitality in order to build loving Christian communities. That's how you do it, to build nightly table fellowship, to notice nightly, not even weekly, with fellow image, image bearers to ease the pain of orphanhood, widowhood, and prison. It has been an absolute joy over the last year to watch our home church leaders give of themselves to try to find um, creative and fascinating ways through uncharted territory of how to practice hospitality, how to practice this sisterly and brotherly love. Just, was it two nights ago, three nights ago, one of our home church leaders reached out and said, I can't explain how I felt being gathered around a fire together for the first time. They were meeting outside their home church for the first time and since last summer. I can't explain to you what that was like and what happened and around the fire, the way people opened up and began to pray for one another and care for one another. It, it, was, it was that moment of just feeling the tangible presence, one person said, of God. 
There's another home church where actually the home church leaders are, are moving and they have just, um, God has used them to prepare this incredible team that has taken up this uh, task of shepherding and caring and blessing and loving what is basically this exploding group of people. I think it's like 15 to 20 people coming to this group right now. And in one of our prayer times recently, um, a member of that new leader team just shared, I had no idea how much love and heart and care existed in this small little leader group over these 15 to 20 people. She was just absolutely blown away at seeing the, the, the manifest power of hospitality of the table on display. The gospel, the gospel call renders strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. This has to start inside our church or has to, to keep going inside our church. In this moment right now, in particular, in the spring of 2021, we have an opportunity to just connect and reach and love our city by the way in which we gather around the table. I think Paul's line to the church in Galatia, um, where he says, is we have provided opportunity, let us do good to all people. Let's love everybody, especially to those who belong to the family or believers. Romans 13, we have the command to practice hospitality. Like one of the many commands in the New Testament to follow Jesus' example and love people through the practice of hospitality. There it's given to us as a go and do this church. Notice, right? Practice hospitality is a verb with no direct object, meaning it's to anybody and to everybody in our family and outside of it. Our goal here in talking about this is that we would, from the inside out, become more loving and hospitable people. Not simply adopt like an external practice. I don't know if that makes sense. Like there's a, there's a difference there. The table helps us become more like Jesus. It will shape your heart posture, whether you're at a dinner table or not. And I want to leave us there because I think as we then come to the communion table, as we come to the bread and the cup today, we have to ask the question, so what will I do with my table? Having received this sort of hospitality from the Lord, Christ's body broken and blood poured out, having, having um, you know, by, by extension of the family of believers, I've had my feet washed by Jesus and I've been invited to extend that out to those around me. What will like the, the table in my heart look like? The literal table in my home? The literal tables in our home church? The fire pits this summer? Like all those like really tangible spaces we can actually gather people but the day-to-day -day posture that exists when we look at the table is almost like an icon. as a monument to who we're to be of inclusive and hospitable people welcoming people into the family. I want us to leave you with two really just practical words. The, fir the first one is to families. I want to encourage families to look for single people. 
to invite them into your life. In particular, the single people who don't have family in town or don't have family who are followers of Jesus, folks that are, you know are struggling with loneliness. And single people, I, I want you to look for families. This is how this stuff gets done, right? We don't just sit back and wait and I wish somebody would. No, like we also go and look for families. I think there's a wedge between single people and families in the church in general and in our own. Uh, here's what I mean. I, I think so many single people feel like they're not wanted by families, which is just not true. Like if you walk into a home and you are single and you're, like I know in my house, and you're somewhere between the ages of like 16 and 30, you are royalty to my seven-year-old. Royalty. A lot of full-time parents in particular, I think, who feel very imprisoned in the living room with, you know, the baby or whatever, like they have a, <laughs> like they're dying for more meaningful relationships and conversations that don't just relate to children. But I think a lot of people just feel like I would never invite a single person over. Like we, our house is an absolute mess. No one's ever going to want to come here and listen to my screaming. Like kids, we need each other. Single people need families. Families need single people. It's about giving and receiving. Remember, if you follow Jesus, you come to a home where you are both host and guest. Remember that the, the idea is you don't just come to um, receive, you come to give. You're not a lost cause or a charity case. You come as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven and as a conduit of the love of the Father. You come um, bringing your little pocket of the kingdom of God of the church into that home. Look for widows and widowers. Look for people traveling in need. Look for immigrants or the refugees. Look for the LGBTQ plus community, especially the gay Christians within our midst. Folks who have taken this, this charge to walk in the way of celibacy and, and, and are, are not to be without family to be invited in and experiencing the richness and incredible power of family remember when you open that door when you open that door you receive a man or a woman as a child of Christ themselves into your home and into your heart that's what the scriptures say you welcome Jesus himself now I know for some of you this is not the culture you came up in I know that I want to encourage you beyond looking to the scriptures, go look for the people in your church who this was part of their culture, right? It's just as an example, I think of the difference between like the Spanish maxim, like mi casa, su casa, and then the more Anglo maxim, which is like a man's house is his castle. One of those is a bit more Jesus oriented than the other, right? Like I'll let you figure that out. Even there, as we look across the aisle, and as we welcome each other into our homes, people across the political aisle, ideological aisle, age aisle, this is how we grow up into the new humanity that Paul talks about, into the family of God. And this is what the end looks like in the scriptures. Every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together, welcomed together at the great feast. The best stuff happens not not just here when we gather to worship with like with a few hundred people in a room the best stuff seems to happen between 10 and 20 people between monday and thursday this these spaces 
where we come together and hear each other's stories, where we laugh together and we play music together and we read together and we, I don't know, what else, what do we do? Knit together, anyone bowl anymore? Like, where we laugh together. These, these, these are the places that we are going to desperately need. We always need them, but more than ever need them in this moment. Easter people, people marked by the resurrection. We eat and we drink and we care for one another around the table. Remember in Acts 4, it says, the power of that resurrection was so mightily at work in this small little church that there were no needy people, needy emotionally, needy relationally, no hungry people. May it be so with us. And as we come to the table, as we take the bread and the cup, even through with Church Online folks through the awkward medium of Zoom, might we allow God to um, convict us, admonish us, encourage us to take the next step forward in our apprenticeship to Jesus and being the, the, the hospitable people that he's called us to be. Lord Jesus, I ask Spirit, would you move as we come to the table? Spirit, would you move as we step into a new week of being the church together? Spirit, would you move? Awaken our soul, Lord, to, the, to your call. Would you bring specific people to mind? And Lord, I pray for those that are not part of the family. Like this is just how we roll in our family. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. As I pray for those watching who aren't followers of Jesus, Lord, would you just, would, would, if there's just something happening in their spirit right now, I just feel compelled, like invite them into the family. Would this be a moment of saying, yes, I wanna be a part of this family. Not sanctuary, but the way of Jesus. I, I wanna step into this way of being in the world. God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for all that you've planned for us in these next few months. In your name we pray, amen. So at this point, there's a link that comes right up on the screen here, here, here. Uh, also in the chat, if you're watching on our platform, you can click there and um, go and join uh, a few of us to take, to take communion together on Zoom. This is also a place where there's some folks available um, to receive prayer. If you'd like to, just to pray with someone, we'll set up some breakout rooms for you. And again, just encouraging you, as soon as you're ready, come on back. We'll see you soon. Grace and peace.